Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and along with me, as usual, is Braxton Hunter. But today we have a very special guest who always increases our views, Dr. Adam Harwood. How you doing, Dr. Harwood? Doing great. Good to be with you. Yeah, we're glad to have you because uh, people say we never talk about eschatology, so we decided we're going to talk about eschatology, and who better to have than the professor of systematic theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He is, uh, I consider, the foremost systematic theologian on planet Earth because Come he, on. he, I mean, well, mainly because he'll answer my questions. <laughs> yeah, we know him. He's our guy. That's right. why he's the best. But he also has written, he's still to this day, the only single volume systematic theology author in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 21st century. So Christian Theology is the book. Uh, Biblical, Historical, and Systematic by Dr. Adam Harwood. I highly recommend it. Plus, he has books on um, the spiritual condition of infants and then infants in the church, I think, is your the, the, the follow-up uh, essay book. It's got essays. It's like a four views book or something. Yeah. it's Yeah, it is. And uh, I have not gotten through that one. I yet. have gotten through yeah. that one. See, I, I, I read the first one because it had a— He dealt with Eastern Orthodox and everybody. Everybody. I, yeah, well, he. Great. But he built on that from his first book. Let, Dr. Harwood, we brought you in and not allowed you to say hardly anything. But let me just say um, right at the top of this show that, uh, first of all, um, there was a little bit of clickbait in the title of this. Yes. Um, the end is nigh. That is true. That is, I mean, that is true. The end is nigh for you, right. for me, maybe for everyone. James 4.14, what is life but a vapor? <laughs> But whatever you think about end times, the end is nigh. And number two, I said that a new book uh, reveals what a lot of people miss or something like that. And it does, because most people just know about the futurist views. And the minute you bring up other views besides futurist views, you've already said at least more than what probably a lot of American evangelicals think. Not only that, but Dr. Harwood, um, explain to, and I think a lot of Christians miss this because they think end times in sort of a universal sense of what happens at the end of time, whereas eschatology, uh, and you, you put this right up front in your book, it has a, as a personal component and then the more cosmic component. So will you explain what eschatology actually entails besides a rapture and stuff? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. So I deal in part eight of Christian theology with last things and eschatology concerns future events, both personal and cosmic. And I begin with personal eschatology because that deals with an individual's death and their experience of the afterlife. And then cosmic eschatology concerns the future return of Christ and the the concept of the eternal destinies of all people and angels. So we're talking about heaven or hell and, uh, and so eschatology does concern future events, but it also concerns uh, God's goal for all people and created things and uh, the restoration of God's kingdom, which which is promised in the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, I, I noticed also early on and then throughout uh, in that first little opening section to part eight and then later on, you did you did talk about the kingdom and one of the things that I liked about that is about your book is you do put a, 
heavier emphasis on the return of Christ than you actually do going through all of the views. You spend more, spill more ink on that and, and its importance. Um, but you also talk about how the kingdom is both now and not yet. And that's a phrase that I agree with, a lot of people agree with, but we do have a, a, a certain segment um, of, of classical dispensationalists and they uh, do not like that phrase because they think that the kingdom is entirely future. Um, but you don't take that, that you're not part of that classical dispensationalist tradition that's, you know. So we explain the already, not yet for what, what that means and what it doesn't mean, I guess. Uh, for sure. Sure. I mean, we could start with the teachings of Jesus. He, he taught his followers to pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom in the Gospels is portrayed as coming at the arrival of, of the Messiah, and then in the book of Acts as being uh, also coming with the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, remember that Jesus told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God had come upon them. And, um, and so there's a sense in which the, God's kingdom came at the incarnation and at the ministry of Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus taught his followers to pray for the kingdom of come uh, to come. So there is this idea of this future coming, this future arrival. And um, the book of Acts begins with uh, the statements about the coming of God's kingdom in uh, verse verses six and seven of Acts one. They gathered together. They asked Jesus, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father set by his own authority. So uh, unfortunately, sometimes as Christians, we separate this kingdom language from the concept of Christ's first coming and his second coming. But but I think that his first and second coming are part of the revelation of God's kingdom. Yeah, so like when we think of like the second coming, the final judgment, the future life of in heavens and the earth and the blessings and the inheritance and all of that, the co the co reigning with Christ and all of that, uh, that gets us into some issues of, of cosmic eschatology. But I did want to start with some uh, kind of interesting things that you bring up in your in your book about personal eschatology, uh, which. You touched on that that not a lot of people they're kind of aware of it, but they don't really jump into it. And that was uh, one of the things that interested me was your discussion of the the intermediate state. But with that, you were discussing the data from Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, you brought up um, there's the discussion of Sheol, and then you go into King Saul consulting the medium to bring up uh, Samuel. <clears throat> And and did, this, did did she really conjure up Samuel? Is that what happened, Adam? Well, from a plain reading of the text, that's what happened. Um, uh, I quote I quote a an Old Testament commentary on that verse that writes uh, a straightforward reading of the biblical account suggests the possibility that mediums may possess the capacity to contact dead persons and establish lines of communication between the living and the dead. That's from Bob Bergen's commentary. 
you know, uh, that's first Samuel 28. It is unusual. King Saul in, employed a medium or, or a witch to conjure up Samuel from the grave. And the text doesn't say it was a spirit that looked like Samuel or that there was a deception occurring. It, it simply mentions that Samuel asked, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Yes. Um, a fair question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and so, so that, that, that was cited as part of trying to survey what the scripture says about the afterlife in the Old and the New Testament. And so <clears throat> one mistake we might make is thinking that what we understand about the afterlife could be read back into these earlier texts. But uh, this, this concept, like so many in scripture, are progressively revealed. There, there is less that is known or revealed in the Old Testament and then there is further revelation in the New Testament. And so I'm, I'm walking through the Old Testament first for this Old Testament perspective on death and the afterlife and the fact that the Old Testament doesn't say a lot about the afterlife. Death is, is sort of the end, and there's this shadowy concept of, of the grave, but there's just not a lot said other than judgment for the wicked and rewards for the righteous. It's it just, that's really it. And so in developing that um, or exploring the afterlife in the Old Testament, that was an unusual uh, instance. It is important to follow that up with noting that there are several passages in the Old Testament where God prohibited contacting the dead. So what was done wasn't endorsed. And this right. is an instance where King Saul was disobeying God. And of course, anyone listening uh, or watching right now who, who's familiar with their Bible knows that even godly people make uh, sinful choices and scripture faithfully records that. So not everything we read in the Bible is offered up as an endorsement to godly as godly behavior. So yeah. just because King Saul uh, conjured up someone from the dead doesn't mean we should do that. And, and in fact, Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 18 all prohibit contacting the dead. And there's nothing in the New Testament that reverses that or or says anything different. So don't try to contact the dead. Absolutely. But Thank the fact goodness that, we had this conversation. Yeah, but, but the fact that it does prohibit it and that it did occur um, raises some eyebrows that Christians can't outright dismiss that sort of witchcraft um, as at least being theoretically possible within the within a biblical worldview that that's on the table and when you progress into the um, intermediate state in the New Testament data you appeal to the parable in Luke about Lazarus and the rich man and of course you drew three principles out of that about uh, wherever they are in the intermediate state is is fixed insofar as if you're on the uh, the bad side, we'll say, you know, or on the bosom side, Abraham's bosom side, you have the bad side, the bosom side. That's pretty much where you end up in the eschaton, too. Uh, there's no there's no changing the internal destinies. It seems to be at least a principle of that, uh, in addition to some, you know, paradise on the one hand and then discomfort on the other. 
but but they did have agency. They were speaking. They were having conversations. And so if if they're able to have these kinds of conversations and they're able to be conjured from the dead, um, there, there's nothing about that New Testament revelation. Um, however you interpret it as a parable or as uh, as a real story or whatever, and you kind of think that that I think you put in a footnote, you think the whole debate about that's irrelevant or not very helpful to understanding the point of it. So, so however you understand it, what we can draw is these, these kind of principles from uh, Luke 16. And, and so that newer revelation doesn't do anything to overturn um, the prior uh, stuff about conjuring the dead. But what is interesting is the rich man did want to go back and warn his brothers and it's like that can't happen but it seems like well if there was a medium <laughs> you know that that uh, how do we how do we I, I know that you're not an occult expert but we're trying to systemize these texts and make sense of it doesn't that seem they didn't seem to think that it was possible uh for him to go back and warn his brothers but so what what are your thoughts on that i'll give you my my opinion on that <clears throat> well I I would consider the um, the episode in in First Samuel to be an exception rather than a, a regular practice, and um, and so God may have granted something in that circumstance for a particular reason to provide information to to King Saul or uh, you know. Uh, to enact judgment against his house or, or something like that for a particular purpose in salvation history that wouldn't be normative in, in a person's experience and, and, and um, may not necessarily be normative for today. But as you were speculating earlier, it's certainly possible uh, that if it happened once, it, it could happen again. Um, you mentioned the term intermediate state, and just to make sure we're on the same page, uh, I'm understanding that as the period of time between a person's death and the time that they are raised to eternal death or eternal life. And, and so, and just real, real quick, uh, Doctor Harwood, just for anyone listening that may not be real familiar, um, that if you're a Christian who has taken on some rather basic theological teachings from a pastor or Sunday school teacher. You may not have ever noticed this, but if you think about it, we have to understand that in some sense uh, there there are differences between what we might call the intermediate state and uh, the ultimate after you're glorified uh, that state a after you're raised. And the reason for that is because, well, when your grandmother dies, you bury her or cremate her or whatever. But if she's experiencing something like this, this story seems to indicate whether it's a parable or not. Um, if she's experiencing something like that, she's not experiencing it in her physical body, but after glorification, she will have a physical body. And so it's, it, if you just think through some of the doctrines that, that most people I think have been to church for very long, know, you kind of arrive at, oh, there is a little bit of a difference there. And maybe I never noticed that before, but I didn't mean to break the flow for you, Dr. Harwood. No, no, that's, that's spot on. This has pastoral implications and, Anyone who's attended a funeral um, may have considered this idea of where where is the believer? Where is this person right now? 
And, and so if we, in a basic definition, if we understand physical death to be the separation of the material from the immaterial or the body from the spirit, however you would, would say that, then, um, whatever happens to the body, as you said, there's still the, the other immaterial aspect or the spirit of that person. So where are they? And, uh, there are several passages which provide light on this, but one of the clearest I think is second Corinthians chapter five, where Paul compares the physical body to a tent. And he says, as long as believers are at home in the body, they're away from the Lord. But if you're absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. And so that's a description of physical death as being absent from the physical body. And so, so, so we continue to exist in the afterlife. Uh, we continue to exist after death, but that is, is not our final state as believers or unbelievers that when Christ returns and he judges the living and the dead, um, that that is the resurrection of the dead that's referred to in John chapter five, for example, that um, people will hear the voice of the son and and the the evil and the righteous um, will will be raised. Um, but before that future event, we continue to exist after death and we in, we exist in what's called an intermediate state. And um, so, so every person exists in the grave. This is the Old Testament concept. This is basically just the righteous and the unrighteous. Just after death, you go to the grave. And there's just not a lot more information provided at that point. There's, there's some clues, but there's just not a lot of information. Do you um, think, in, uh, Dr. Harwood, do you think that when uh, we commonly hear like, we hear this about Old Testament figures that when they died, they were gathered to their fathers. Do you think that is just kind of an idiom for, uh, you know, they've passed away kind of thing? Or do you think that's an yeah. actual, that has content that, oh, no, 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 to say they're gathered to their fathers was a teaching that they do have some kind of afterlife experience? I, I think it's, I think it's two-pronged. I, I think the idea of them being gathered to their fathers, one, in the afterlife, um, they would go to the grave and they would be with their fathers in the afterlife. And uh, there are some clues that the, that the righteous anticipated being in the presence of the Lord. Um, uh, in Psalm 16, for example, um, David has this, expresses this expectation that he would be in the Lord's presence uh, in the afterlife. And with his son, he will not return to me, but I'll go to him. That's right. That's right. Second, this idea of being gathered to the fathers, I think, could also be physical because of the ancient burial practices. The The body was literally laid with the bones of the ancestors. And so that's why the uh, the disposition of of uh, the patriarch's body was so significant because they they were going to be um, gathered to the fathers. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I, I, the reason I don't want to turn our eschatology into the Christian X-Files here, but it just seemed to me that Abraham wasn't going to grant Lazarus uh, to go warn the brothers. 
for the rich man. But I, I still think, given this, given like when when Jesus was walking on water, I I think that you know they thought that they had saw a ghost or an apparition. Like they have categories for these that they seem to believe, even if the Bible's not necessarily affirming. But we know that it's condemning this, so it seems like. The intermediate state to me, because we have so little data on it, but that the data that we do have causes you to go, huh? It, it, it might be a little bit more complicated than we want to uh, think about, you know, because a lot of times we don't want to think about it that, well, people can commune with the dead. But anyway, th those are just my thoughts. I think it's possible that I don't think Abraham was, you know, however you take the story, those on the good side is not going to grant this kind of behavior, right? For 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 this kind of post death evangelism kind of thing on you know, but it did lead me another thing about the intermediate state because you do you do touch on purgatory and you do touch on prayer for the dead, and in your conclusion on the prayer for the dead, I don't really, I mean, you you just kind of lay out Protestants can't affirm a Catholic version, but in your book you say there is a Protestant version that seems to be like, okay, uh, not that you agree with it, but like the Jerry Walls thing, you, you know, you're like, well, if, if you, if, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, all of that, you kind of go into all that, but you don't, you don't seem to, to agree with it, but it's like, that's You don't there. like it. Huh? He didn't like it. Yeah, it's not his thing. He doesn't pray to dead people. Well, he just told us a few minutes ago, don't try to contact the dead. Right. And, and but you you not only said I you know because of the medium stuff and the contacting the dead you, your final statement on prayer for the dead was that you didn't think it was while there's no explicit prohibition that praying either for or to the dead and you added that prayer for the dead uh, in there as to the dead and the reason why I want to ask about your your opinion that you don't think that's a good idea what to what extent do we understand, like, when we talk about prayers, we think about Catholics, they might pray to dead saints or whatever, but we, like, if I'm praying to God, and I ask God something that, or say something offhand to God's in my communication with God, that I'm hoping that my dad and my older brother, who just went uh, to be with the Lord uh, several months ago, like, I hope they're well. Is that... In your mind, since you, would that count as a prayer for the dead? And does that kind of cross a line for you to mention that? Because it, it's kind of like the C.S. quote, the C.S. Lewis quote that you mentioned about, I'm talking to God, but these these things are unmentionable. You know, like the people that I love are unmentionable and to, talking to the God that I love kind of thing. So what, what should I not be doing that? Like if it just kind of comes out in my prayers, should I kind of be more consciously not mentioning that or, or what? Let me begin that response by saying that I think the book of Psalms models for us honest prayer before God. Um, there's almost no wrong way to pray. The, the wrong way to pray is dishonest or holding back. The right way to pray is being completely honest with God, whether you are praising him or you are shaking your fist in anger or you're throwing yourself on the ground in despair and tears. Those are the honest prayers that I see 
in in the book of Psalms. So in that sense, if you're being honest before God, I don't think there's a there's a wrong way to pray. Um, I, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying about mentioning a deceased loved one in prayer. God, please tell so and so I, you know, I said hi or <laughs> something like <laughs> right. that. I, it's a really that, that is something. I think that is something different than attempting to conjure up uh, a deceased person or participating in a seance or these um, acts that are prohibited in in the Old Testament. There are traditions, including some in the Christian tradition, where there are actually prayers to or for those who have died. <clears throat> in some Eastern uh, Christian traditions, there's almost a syncretism that has developed in their culture because other world religions participate in contacting the dead. So there's been a syncretism where some Christians participate in festivals for um, deceased relatives or, um, or might use terms or categories like purgatory and, and and think that they can pray for them to either improve their status or or get them out of a holding uh, a holding station into heaven. So, <clears throat> so let me clarify something else. Um, purgatory is a is a big topic, and it's understood in different ways by different groups. And so, the traditional Roman Catholic view of purgatory is criticized by some some Protestants because it seems like there is justification occurring after death, uh, or there are contributions or merits, or, or that somehow a person who is not yet saved at death becomes saved or becomes righteous because of the prayers of individuals on earth. Mm. And so that's, that's one view of purgatory, and that's the long-standing traditional Roman Catholic perspective. And, uh, and one of the things that I introduce, in addition to giving some of the historic background behind that and, and the justification that, um, that some Orthodox Christians have had for praying for the dead, is there's a different view that's a Protestant view of post-mortem sanctification and that's different than purgatory but it sounds similar because you you're praying for the condition of a person to improve after their death and this is where the discussion of, of uh, c.s lewis and and others are brought in and this is where wall's work is so helpful uh, and interesting in exploring the topic and i interact with him among among some others um, but this idea of postmortem sanctification is the idea that uh, traditionally, if a, if a person, if a Christian is asked, when, when do we attain Christ likeness? When are we fully glorified, fully justified? When do we become like Christ as Scripture promises? And and the answer to that is. Uh, when we see his face. Um, so, so the default that many people have about when does ultimate glorification happen, uh, the default answer is at the moment of death. So you, you die, 
if you're if you are already a believer at the time of death, then when you die, you will immediately be glorified and and look like Christ. Postmortem sanctification is this concept that maybe that glorification is not immediately and instantaneously um, enacted upon death, but maybe there's a period of time in the afterlife where that occurs and there's a, a progressive sanctification that is similar to the progressive sanctification during one's lifetime. And, and that's all that's being explored on this postmortem sanctification. It's a, it's a pretty unusual concept, but, uh, but I, I want to clarify, cause I don't want it to be confused with the Roman Catholic view of purgatory right. where it's not clear that someone is a believer, but then they're in this intermediate status in the afterlife and they can be prayed into heaven. That, that is not the postmortem sanctification concept. Right. This, this uh, if I can, this, this yeah. is a really helpful clarification because I've had people who become aware of Jerry Walls ask me how in the world can we hold to some sort of purgatory view? The theological and sort of philosophical case that I think people make, however much water people want to put into that, seems to be, look, if we believe that this doctrine of sanctification really does matter, like it's a real thing and it's meaningful, and we have a young man who has lived a horrible life until he's 25, uh, just every imaginable sinful thing, hurting people, living for self, becomes a Christian one night um, because he listens to Jonathan Pritchett preach at a local church, and then the next day he dies in an automobile accident with almost no process of sanctification. On the other hand, we have a, a lady who gets saved when she's nine years old, and she lives to be 99 years old. She has had a lot of progress, we hope, on that process of sanctification. Um, and so Walls and Lewis and other people, I think, see it like, well, if that's a meaningful thing, then it seems that it has to be fleshed out somewhere. It has to be borne out and you must complete that sanctification process. Is that how you understand the, the point to basically be? Yes. Yeah. But I, I take it similar on eschatology where, where Paul says, you know, people who are alive, you know, with the dead rise and those who are alive in Christ are, are caught up. There seems to be something transformative to those who are alive at, at the when when Jesus shows up that indicates to me that there's no problem there with instantaneous sanctification and glorification to fill up the rest, which is why I hold what you you termed the the majority view of uh, of that you know that kind of instantaneous thing upon glorification. So I I, I don't I don't really see the necessity of any sort of protestant purgatory for sanctification um all of our walks with christ are different whether you're you know saved on your deathbed conversion or you have those 90 years like the woman you mentioned so i i think that's in god's purview but christ kind of equalizes all that through justification so sanctification i think is for how we are to live if we are to live but if you know and and progress towards holiness in this world uh, and full sanctification is just that final ultimate sanctification is just the standard for the world to come. That yeah. that's just how that world is. And so um, whether we can achieve entire sanctification this side of heaven or not, it doesn't really matter because the, the goal is to be more sanctified. Real quick, uh, Dr. Arwood, you may want to come back on that. I don't know, but I wanted to say that Kevin here is um, a former Catholic and now agnostic, 
very friendly guy recently debated David Palman, who is uh, one of our students, and we're uh. thrilled with that. But he says, just to clear things up, Catholics don't believe that people are border- who are borderline go to purgatory or anything like that. Everyone in purgatory is heaven bound, he says. Uh, I maybe. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, you <clears throat> maybe. Um, because of the history of the doctrine, um, and 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 it's possible to trace it all the way back to the Passion of Perpetuum Felicitas in uh, in two o three. Uh, as one That's of the how you early, know we got an expert. He just busted out the passion of Felicitas. That he's definitely next. Yeah, and he's going to talk about the shift from an <laughs> adverb to a noun because I read his book. Go ahead, <laughs> and and so so there's a long and complex history of the doctrine. And so, are there expressions or or even um, official teachings of the church in certain periods of time that say? Purgatory only concerned individuals who were already righteous. Absolutely. But that's not always been the understanding, and that's not the understanding of everyone. And there are multiple perspectives uh, of purgatory. Um, and so uh, th- that would be my response to that. So, one final question. Well, wait, real quick. Let's just bust this out while we have it here. Okay. Uh, Slavic Striz oh, gives us $5. Thank you very much. And says, What is the mechanism? That, so, we're not Catholics here, but uh, we, we do have, we can talk about it. What is the mechanism for praying to Mary? Angels on the way to God drop off at her mailbox. How can she deal with all of them? So, basically, we have this problem that is sometimes characterized as the need for Mary to be omniscient in order to function as a recipient of all of these prayers right. not just omniscient but omnipresent and i i think the what i've heard is a punt to be theory oh okay dr harwood do you have any thoughts on that yeah um there are a lot of common doctrinal points between protestants and roman catholics there are far more than i think most evangelicals would guess if if an, if the typical evangelical would sit down with the catechism of the Catholic Church and just begin reading through it, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, they would say, oh, this is good. This is good. I agree with this. Uh, oh, this is rich. This is so helpful. And, and it, that's just um, that's just the case. However, on, on our view of Mary and on the Roman Catholic, uh, the official teachings of the Church on Mary, there are some significant points of divergence and some of those include um, praying to Mary, um, her immaculate conception, which is different than the virgin birth. Immaculate conception was that she was sinless so that she could deliver a sinless savior. And also her perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin throughout her lifetime, um, as well as her ascension after her death, that she never experienced, excuse me, her ascension at the end of her life, um, the fact uh, the, the concept that she never died. Uh, but this idea of praying to Mary is rooted, I think, uh, and I'm no expert on Roman Catholic theology, but I think it's rooted in the concept of her being co-redemptrix. And so Jesus is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. But Mary, as the bearer of the Christ and the mother of Jesus, is regarded as the mother of God. And so there is this sense in which she is a co 
redemptrix. She's a co-redeemer. And at the lay level, I've heard Roman Catholics explain, well, we pray to Mary because just like in a typical household, sometimes dad is very stern and it's hard to persuade him. So we talk to mom and mom talks to dad. That's kind of a lay level Roman Catholic understanding that I've heard about why people would pray to Mary. But I think um, uh, a deeper theological issue um, lies in her being viewed as a co-redemptrix, which is something that, uh, of course, Protestants and, and evangelicals um, would reject. And, and I, I would also reject that. She's, she's held up in scripture as a servant of God and a model for Christian behavior. But I'm, I'm not persuaded by scripture that she was uh, immaculate, that I, I don't affirm the immaculate conception. I don't affirm her perpetual virginity. I see no evidence that uh, she ascended rather than died and certainly would never pray to her uh, or about her. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, One final question before we get on to cosmic eschatology. Um, And that had to do with um, hell. (laughs) Uh, And and of course, in your view, you uh, are in your book, you, you talk about you, primarily focused on uh, conditional immortality and um, eternal conscious torment. And of course, both of us have spoke at the Rethinking Hell conference. So we, we talk about hell a lot. And of course, with apologetics and uh, surprising you, 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 you uh, for a systematic theologian to address the issues concerning uh, like the justice of God and all that, which you, you touch on in your book too, which I'm grateful for. Um, but Braxton actually teaches a whole course on hell. And um, so we wanted to get into to that. And, and of course, that's one of those things where you, uh, as so often in your book, and this is why it's a really good book that everyone who's watching this uh, and sees it in the future needs to go buy this book, is because you, it's matter-of-factly stating the positions and on some things you give, uh, you're standing which way you lean, which way you're strongly in favor for, or which way you say, I don't take a position. Um, but in discussing Hill, um, it was kind of interesting. You go through those, those views, and you just kind of lay it all out. You lay out the pros, and kind of like the strengths and weaknesses, and then you leave it at that and move on. So um, when we think about Hill, uh, and the questions I think— uh, for those who don't know, there's discussion questions in in this Christian theology book that you, if you wanted to use it th- with a small group or whatever, you could you could raise those questions, or you could just answer them for yourself. Um, so, but we spend a lot of time thinking about hell more than heaven. But what are your thoughts on hell? <laughs> How often do you think about hell? <laughs> are you experiencing hell <laughs> right now? <laughs> Well, as you know, I start that chapter by making the case that God doesn't want anyone to go there. Right. Amen. This this is a reality, but God loves every person. And the reason Christ died was uh, to redeem sinners. And and so uh, the cross was a rescue mission in that sense. And so uh, that was that was a place I wanted to use as a starting point is that uh, God doesn't want people to go there. Nevertheless, there are many statements in the Old and New Testament which refer to 
the judgment of the wicked or the unregenerate. So how do we make sense of that? And so as you noted, uh, I, I try to present the best possible biblical theological case for not one Christian view of hell, but two Christian views of hell. And uh, that is, I think, rare among evangelical systematics because typically eternal conscious torment is the only possibility and the other alternatives are dismissed as sub-biblical or unacceptable or with some other label. Um, <clears throat> but, I, but I deal with eternal conscious torment or the classical view and then conditional immortality, which some people call annihilationism, and uh, they're essentially two sides of the same coin. So ECT... Quick, quick question, or, Adam. Yeah. Quick question here. Did, did you in, Why did you include that? Did you include that because you see that it's maybe becoming more popular among seminarians? The reason I included it <clears throat> was because even though it is controversial right now among evangelicals, there is a, a strong case from the scripture that can be made to support CI. Um, this, the greatest strength of eternal conscious torment, which also can build a case from, from the scripture, uh, the strongest support is the the historical weight this ect is what the church has believed it's easily been uh the majority position um it's uh the the vast majority of christian thinkers and leaders and faithful teachers and uh, confessions if they if they specify uh, uh, the view would support ect <clears throat> Um, however, uh, there, there is a case that has been defended or at least acknowledged by well-respected uh, Christian uh, biblical scholars. And so it's not just one or two exceptions or outliers, but, but mainstream conservative respected Bible scholars who say either this is a view I endorse or this is a view that is biblically defensible and should be considered by Christians. And so for that reason, um, I, I included both views. Yeah, and so in my Rethinking Hell um, presentation, I go over a myriad of eternal conscious torment views, because we could say there's that view, but even within that view, there is a lot of disparity and a lot of... Uh, "Quote unquote," rethinking of what hell is like. Yeah, is from, it literal flames or is it? Right, is it the torture boredom? chamber of Dante, or is it just you sit around sad all the time, like in uh, what dreams may come? Or as you, know, you put it, the the eternal you know, Gollum. Yeah, view. you become the, more like Gollum as you go along. Yeah, that, that's how I labeled like N.T. Wright's view is the Golluming view. It's like so. There's not even just one view of eternal conscious torment. So while the overall idea of eternality of the damned is the major theme for the ect crowd um it's there's that's not monolithic by any means uh and so i i i, I don't want to 
I don't really like the people who characterize it as one versus the other as if um, when someone says, I'm going to f- defend this view against someone who's like Chris Tate. And then they, they, they want to beg off the question of what that's like. Now, what view are you defending? Because how you arrive at eternal conscious torment, uh, your exegesis is also at play to arrive at what kind of eternal conscious torment, how you're reading certain passages. Mm-hmm. So you can't just punt on that question. So I want to know, you know, and I understand some things more figurative than it. Fine. But I, I, I want to know when someone is what advocating, what is it like? If you think it's that, then why that? And what is that? So I broke up your flow, though, Adam, to ask my questions. Did you were you on to something after that point? Well, something that came to mind as Jonathan was talking was I remember that presentation uh, that you made several years ago at the Rethinking Hell conference. And I remember being impressed and thinking this is a very good uh, presentation. I I thought you did a great job with that. And gold star, Jonathan. (laughs) And uh, something else um, in in preparing this manuscript. I really wanted Chris date to put his eyes on this chapter and read it and, and give me, um, critical feedback. And I, I contacted him and it was a very busy period of time in his life. Um, but he, he made time, he, and he made copious notes. Um, on the chapter, and that was very helpful. I acknowledge him early in the book as there's a list of people who read um, portions of of the book, and uh, and I thank them. and And um, he's in that list for this reason. Um, he helped he helped me refine my language and my arguments so I could give the best possible uh, case for CI and. Um, this is something we talked about before um, starting this program. Um, you all asked me what my own view was on this. And um, that's the same thing that Chris asked me. He's, I think he said something like this. Um, he said, he said, Adam, I've, I've read, I've read this chapter four or five times. And he said, I can't figure out your view. Can you, can you just tell me your view and I'll keep it private. I, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, that's how you know you did a good job, I guess. In and, fairly... and notice he ended right there without ever. Yeah, he ended. Uh, <laughs> but um... <laughs> he's not going to give us any more than that. I no. love it. Um, um, yeah. So moving on to cosmic. Wait, 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 wait. Are you still Der- on Derek hell? did want to know. Derek Taylor oh. said, uh, did Chris Day contribute in that same way, I imagine, on the section on physicalism? I asked him to read this chapter on uh, chapter 30, which is on hell and heaven. Uh, although I don't think I sent him the heaven portion. I, I think I just sent him the hell portion. Uh, so if, if the physicalism discussion is in an earlier chapter, which I think it is, then, then no, but I, I did try to find, um, competent experts and, and, people who could provide uh, feedback and, and uh, Jonathan, I remember there were several uh, chapters that you read and 
Braxton, I, <clears throat> I think being seminary president, you may have been too busy. I don't remember uh, if you gave specific feedback, but I, I know I'm we've had conversations. I'm just happy to own and learn from the book. And you and I have worked on things when you were talking before about how you opened the chapter on hell saying that, that God doesn't want anyone to go there. I kept wanting to say, right, because anyone can be saved because we have a book together on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the shots fired at the Calvinist. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, actually, since you just brought up, no one's interested in heaven. Everyone wants to talk about hell. But I, I love this, so I want to I wanna read this one sentence uh, or this little portion for your book on heaven. On, on You're talking about glorified bodies and stuff because you're asking, what, what are, what are we going to do in the new creation? And the sentence towards the bottom, I really liked. It says, glorified bodies will inhabit the new creation. If people produce culture, then glorified people might produce a glorified culture, including art, books, music, film, and sports. These ideas should not be dismissed as fantasy. Jesus appeared on earth in his glorified body, and he promised to renew and restore both creation and his people to be with God for uh, to be with God forever. And I just loved that because uh, Jesus in the incarnation and hanging around for forty days glorified, uh, he, that ennobles human activity. It ennobles work. It ennobles play. It hobby all of it and so i agree with you that when we think about whether, whether you've moved past the sitting in the clouds strumming harps for all eternity and singing the the overlong worship service with the annoying worship leaders that's not heaven and you're into the new heavens and new earth well i think it, you're right that we shouldn't dismiss these ideas because it seems the garden had work and we're getting back to that you know the the tree of life both sides of the river and that that jesus had work, you know, and the Bible makes sure we know that. And, and of course he did ministry work as well. So I, I think that that is an important conversation, um, heaven. And, and I like that you included that, that line that, that all of these things will be glorified. And you earlier in that same paragraph, you talked about the places. So when, when you say we shouldn't be dismissed as fantasy, how, I know there's not a lot of biblical data that you have to work with on what it's going to be like, but we have often talked about streets of gold and mansions and all that, even though that's a bit sketchy, but this seems more on target. So can you just kind of summarize your thoughts of our life in the new heavens and new earth? And, and, and specifically, is it possible that in a hundred thousand years from now, he will have hair. We right? might, we might have, we, <laughs> we might have uh, a stream just like this, perhaps with more advanced <laughs> technology and be having an interview with Adam Harwood about a new book he's written a hundred thousand years in the future. Could we be sitting right here? That's in a new here, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth. And, and it would be a new us because we would be glorified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like That's a great. like a phone upgrade. That's an analogy. That, yeah, that the I mobile phone, the old mobile phone versus your smartphone. I like I like that because that that seems because you're talking about how you could take texts and pictures that were real grainy and you couldn't really get them off your phone, and then now you have the smartphone that could do all of that the better, and so it kind of played into that theme. So, I mean, do you do you have the kind of positive, optimistic, we will become explorers kind of view? You know, we have a whole cosmos that God created, so we're going to branch out. 
Is that kind of your take on all that? <clears throat> I, I don't have uh, an unrestrained uh, imagination of, about what the new heaven and new earth will be like. Um, but I do think it's important for Christians to understand and consider that the promise is not that we will continue to exist after we die. Uh, the, the hope and the promise that we have is Jesus has defeated death. He will return and we will be raised and be made like him and we will live eternally. And just as, just as Jesus was raised bodily, we will be raised bodily and the mortal will become immortal and the perishable will become imperishable. So in that sense, the future heaven, not, not the intermediate state before Christ's return, but the future heaven, which follows Christ's return and establishing his kingdom and the renewal of all things, um, will be an embodied existence. And some of the clues that I have in, in scripture about that is Jesus promising to prepare a place for them. John 14, 3. Uh, a, a tapas, a place. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the author of Hebrews, you know, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. God's not ashamed to be their God for he's prepared a city for them. So city and place, and uh and country all communicate the idea that there's a dwelling place and the best picture i think and the clearest picture and the one that sparks the imagination is found in revelation 21 and 22 with the new heaven and new earth and the new jerusalem is described um and and this is where god will dwell with his people and so the most important thing about the final state for believers is that God will be there and we will be with God. So easily, that's the most important thing. We'll, we'll be with Jesus. We'll be with God. We'll be with his spirit. Um, you could say we'll be with the triune God, right? Um, and that's the most important thing. But, but there is value, I think, in considering, well, what will that be like if Jesus was raised bodily and I will be raised bodily, then I'm not going to be a spirit floating around. And if scripture refers to the new heaven and new earth and we're talking about eternity then what will i do and and so that's where the sanctified imagination not unrestrained but constrained by the parameters of scripture and the clues that we see in scripture about what a resurrection body might be like what jesus body was like after his resurrection in the appearances that he made um, and, and some other clues I think could be helpful, but definitely the most important thing about the new heaven and new earth is that God will be with his people. Well, you know, uh, Amen. yeah, um, there was something I was going to say about that, but yeah. I lost it because I was looking at a, yeah. a chat thing. Somebody Braxton said. is asking stupid questions, and uh, the better question is: Will they make us forget the last so, two so Indiana Jones movies in heaven? That's the you haven't that, seen the new the, Indiana Jones. I know, Jones but I've, I've heard uh, I've heard you, and then I've heard the entire. So rest we've of done. The we've taken some poll questions here, Adam, and uh, we've we've seen what the audience thinks. 
uh, will Jesus return in the lifetime of Adam Braxton and Jonathan? Um, 70% said no. And 30% said yes. So um, that's interesting. Should JP stop asking Jesus to give secret messages to uh, his family? And that was 55% yes and 45% no. Y'all are awful. Um, Y'all are awful. Okay, what were you going to say, Adam? I was just going to say that um, we have lived in the last days since the ascension of Christ. Yeah, amen. Right. So, So in that sense, Christ could have come back at any time. And the New Testament indicates he could come back at any time and... Um, we are to live our lives in light of his future return, living lives of holiness, uh, being faithful witnesses for Christ. And and Jesus said um, that no one knows when the Son of Man will return, um, only the Father. Uh, during his ministry, even Jesus admitted that he didn't know. He said, the angels don't know, only the Father knows. That's Mark 13, 32. And so... So if Jesus didn't know, certainly we don't know, uh, but we should be prepared for his return. Yeah. Amen. Well, I don't 30, know. 30, 30% yeah. think he will probably return in, in uh, our life. Are you are you still good on time? Do you have time for a couple more subjects? Sure, Dr. sure. Okay, so I wanted to shift to 15 minutes ago. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I wanted to shift to uh, cosmic eschatology. I'm sure that's what everyone wants to know about. And so start off by giving everyone an understand kind of uh, the, the nuts and bolts of the millennium, millennium, the different views on that, and kind of the different takes of revelation, um, the, the different types of interpretation methods. Um, so go over, what is there, four? Um, yeah, four the four takes of revelation and kind of explain all that to give us kind of, are you talking about like the futurist, the and idealist and historicist? The idealist, the, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Explain all that. Cause we're probably better than we can. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Uh, so yeah, explain we talk- cosmic <laughs> eschatology and tell us what to think about it. <laughs> That's a tall order. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so we've talked about the return of Christ when Christ returns he will reign. So this is the Christian expectation. Um, but what exactly is that going to look like? Um, there, there is um, a key biblical text that concerns the reign of Christ, and, and that is Revelation chapter 20. And the interpretations of that text depend on how you read the whole book. Uh, anyone who served in ministry or, or been a member of a church for any length of time will know that the book of Revelation is different than other books because um, if on a Wednesday night or Sunday morning the pastor begins a series on Mark or on John or on um, you know, Ephesians, there's probably not going to be controversy that is sparked. But the book of Revelation is unique because it's um, because of the blending of literature and and what's happening in the book and the fact that there's not a consensus Christian interpretation that I, I've seen in my own experience where 
uh, someone begins teaching through the book of Revelation and and there's peace and there's calm and unity in the congregation until you get a few weeks into the teaching and people begin hearing a perspective that's not what they were taught about the book of Revelation. And then all of a sudden people are upset because they're they're hearing different interpretations. And when they hear different interpretations, sometimes they take that to mean this person believes the Bible and that other person doesn't rather than they're both being faithful to scripture, but they simply have different conclusions on these disputable matters. So I think we're all familiar with that, but, but I want to just start off by saying that that's, that's unique uh, or at least distinct with the, the book of revelation. Um, certainly there are controversial doctrines that can be found in other books, but revelation as a whole really can be interpreted under several different grids. So, Back to Revelation chapter 20, um, there, there is the mention of a, of a thousand year reign of Christ in um, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So, so if, you, if you read the book roughly chronologically, then in chapter 19, you have Christ returning, and then in 20, he's reigning, and then in chapter 21 and 22, you have the new heaven and new earth. So if that's the sequence, then you have the reign, the, the return of Christ, and then and then His reign. Um, but the fact that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, um, and then Satan being released, verse three, and then Christian martyrs, uh, you know, coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. This thousand years seems significant, and uh, so. So how you interpret that thousand year reign or a thousand years is a millennium. So um, for the Star Wars fans, the Millennium Falcon, right? Just yeah, sure. thousand year millennium. Uh, so that millennial reign can be interpreted different ways depending on how you understand the book as a whole. Uh, the historicist interpretation basically says that the events in the book depict an outline of Western church history from the cross until the return of Christ. And so, um, and that one's pretty much dead, right? I mean, we have Seventh Day Adventists and not many people else, right? That hold the historicist, or well, and there, there may be some dispensationalists who who look at the book and they see they see different periods of time. They incorporate maybe that into it, the different ages. That's right. Um, it's not as common a view. It's not as popular a view. There is the preterist interpretation. And they interpret the book as concerning events up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So the Great Tribulation isn't about some future event from our perspective today with the Antichrist or Satan or, or um, instead, under the Preterist interpretation, the prophecies in the book of Revelation were all fulfilled in the first century uh, during the Roman Empire. And, um, and, and, and they would justify that kind of interpretation by Matthew, for example, Matthew 24 describes the end of the age. And then he says in verse 34, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so read that verse by itself, uh, if the end of the age is referring to the future return of Christ, 
the, and this generation won't pass away till all these things have happened, well, then the end of the age must not refer to the return of Christ, but but the uh, destruction of the temple, which was a cataclysmic event in the first century for for the Jews and for the uh, or, or for the Jews. Um, the idealist interpretation reads the book and says the book of Revelation is about the spiritual war between God and Satan. And so th there's a uh, this isn't a historicist interpretation. This isn't referring to empires, um, but this is about timeless truths of of this cosmic battle. The futurist interpretation regards most of the book. So you begin in chapter four and you go forward. <clears throat> most of the book concerns <clears throat> future events from, from their perspective and some of those future events from our perspective. <clears throat> um, and then the eclectic interpretation is a blending of those interpretations depending on where you are in the book. In other words, one interpretation shouldn't be laid over the entire book, but you may have different interpretive models that are a better fit for different portions of the book. So that would be like <clears throat> Steve Gregg says that he predominantly takes a preterist view, but there are sections that he takes the idealist view. And so, exactly. so, so there's mishmash. So, so the eclectic view would be, a fifth view that kind of remixes a one or two or more uh, different. But it would be a, but it, but just to clarify for Greg, since he's not here, uh, he would be what we would have called a partial preterist uh, view that says that thing. Some of the things like chapter 20, is it? And on our future, our future. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So partial preterist is most things in 70 AD. The full preterist, full preterist is there's nothing else. Yeah, yeah there's right? nothing else. Christ has already had the second coming and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's, I guess it's, just, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that in a middle, minute. But one of the things that I found interesting was um, about the millennial views, um, the, the post-millennial, the all-millennial, the pre-millennial, is the comment that you made to me in a text that was also in your book, Anthony Thielson, I think, says that it's Americans who are obsessed with the uh, v different views of the millennium. And as a footnote. Yeah, it was in a footnote. And you, you had mentioned that your survey of American systematic theology books versus the more European systematics uh that rang true to you, I think, is what 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 you said. So, kind of, I I was just curious since you had mentioned that in the text along with your book when when we told you that we, Braxton and I kind of default lean all millennial, but we're not like, you know, that's not a hill that I'll die on. I'm just kind of lean that way. But you're just kind of, uh, you actually state that you you're not convinced of any of them in the book. That, that you're you're still kind of looking around on that one so explain explain American obsession with this uh, <laughs> and why you still remain unconvinced of any one of the books uh, any one of the millennial views right okay um, <clears throat> so in the broad sweep of church history, every orthodox christian movement and teacher and historic confession 
is going to affirm the future return of Christ. So that is clear. <clears throat> what is disputed concerns the sequence and the timing of the events. What exactly is going to happen when he returns? So all Christians are affirming that he's going to return, but there are different interpretations once you get down to a, a fine grain detail of, all right, what exactly happens next? And then how do you understand this passage? And that's where the millennial perspectives come in. And in addition to uh, Thistleton's remark that uh, uh, was, was in his systematic um, the claims that a millennium will take place in the future are far more familiar in America than in Britain and Europe, except perhaps in classic Pentecostalism, he said. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really interesting. In addition, there's a the T&T Clark Handbook on Christian Eschatology says something very similar, that throughout church history, you can find teachings and discussions about Christ's return but discussions about the return in relation to the millennium became significant in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. Let me hold up a book that I haven't finished reading yet, but I think is related to this discussion. I may be wrong. This is a tentative understanding. So you're, you've got me in process here in mid thought. Um, this isn't a fully developed, um, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to commit to this, right? This book uh, came out this summer. It's called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. It's by Daniel Hummel, it's, uh, published by Erdman's. The subtitle is How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. His focus is on how um, beliefs about not just the return of Christ, but the rapture mm. um, shaped culture and even um, uh, right-wing, so to speak, uh, right-wing politics in, uh, in the 80s and, and 90s. I'm only halfway through the book, uh, and I'm not fully persuaded, but I'm wondering if this is related, that basically what you have is a focus in much of American theology on millennial perspectives that is not a focus in European or Asian theologians, um, unless those European or Asian uh, or African theologians were trained in the United States. I, I right. want to be clear about that. It's it's not that if you are an Asian theologian, you will necessarily think differently. Uh, if you're an Asian theologian and you were trained in the United States, very likely you will absorb these concepts and and you will consider this framework to be normative in your eschatology. But if you were indigenous to the European uh, worldview and theology and systems, um, this isn't on your radar. Uh, these discussions about um, whether or not Christ will reign literally when he returns and whether or not that will be before or after his return, uh, you know, the sequence and the timing and, and the tribulation, all of those discussions seem to be heavily concentrated in the United States. 
And, and I do wonder if that's because of the influence of the questions and teachings that are raised by dispensationalism. Well, it's interesting you say that. I just pulled up the foreword to the book that you're referencing, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, and it begins, Besides Darby, the book's burgeoning cast of characters includes many figures well-known to historians as well as the general public. Evangelist D.L. Moody, Bible editor C.I. Schofield. My dad used to say, it's not a copy of the Word of God unless it is a black leather King James. (laughs) Gofield Bible, the uh, R.A. Tory, uh, Lim Stewart, uh, Lyman Stewart. Uh, th- so this, there, th- it really is making the case Lewis from these Spirit figures Chief. we all know. Hal Lindsey, yeah, yeah, Charles Ryrie. Yeah, so that's an interesting. I, I think I want to read that book because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is I've seen kind of an increase in in uh, postmillennialism, especially in Reformed circles. Uh, here in the U.S., there's a lot more people talking about it. I know prominent apologist James White recently uh, converted to that position after he he started uh, on staff at um, Apologia Church and all that with Jeff Durbin. They were they were post millennialists, and so I've, I've kind of noticed it more in the Twitter sphere that uh, eschatology is making a comeback, and similar to the thesis of that book and how. American culture kind of shaped the discussion of tying millennial views to the second coming of Christ and conservative politics and stuff, um, which, you know, full disclosure, I'm a conservative political leanings guy. But um, I've noticed that with with the postmillennialist view, it's similarly tied to culture wars and things like that in in the reform tradition where it's is coming about. And you see that coincide with the increase of Christian nationalism, whereas three years ago it was uh, a, a kind of a, you know, you're casting an aspersion if you call it someone that, and they've kind of taken that and say, yeah, we're Christian nationalists. People like Vody Bauckham saying, what kind of nationalism do you want? You want a Christian one or a different one? You know, so they're kind of, yes, we're Christian nationalists. And you see some internal debates between post-millennialists who are Christian nationalists, self-avowed, and those who aren't. But I, I've seen that increase of, of uh, post-millennialism, uh, the view that everything is getting better, and it's kind of tied to a Christian nationalism. And I wonder if the, the desire for a, a more thoroughly Christian culture, not just in, in, in society but in law, if that's driving eschatology once again with the uptick in people— promoting post-millennialism or is that just a reaction to dispensationalism you know i, I and and the the pre-trib pre-rapture pre-millennial stuff there there may be some similarities between the rise in christian nationalism and and a perception of the progress of christianity and the the desire for culture to improve before the return of Christ and the end of the 19th century, which was also an era where um, there was progress and innovation and a very optimistic outlook for society and for Christianity and for the flourishing of the gospel. And that was abruptly disturbed by the Great War, World War One. And then 
um, if there was anything left of optimism about the improvement of culture and and the flourishing of the gospel, then um, World War II uh, killed off the rest of that. And so that's the that's the general view of of postmillennial um, enthusiasts in the past or uh, advocates. Um, if and and so if it's on the uptick again, it may it may be related to at least in this country um, or more common among advocates of Christian nationalism. Um, I'd have to think about that, but that's an interesting connection, maybe. Yeah. Well, if you ask any dispensationalists, you know, going back to what the late uh, 1800s or whatever, uh, if you're to ask any classical dispensationalists, they're going to tell you, I believe my view because of the Bible, not because of any sort of cultural things. And if you ask a post-millennialist now why they are post-millennialists, they're going to say, I believe because of the Bible, not because of anything I'm hoping for in American culture and all that. But I, I do think, going back to the question about millennial views tied to the second coming of Christ in American culture versus European or African or uh, Asian cultures— our cultural context does fog in a way or filter our theology more than we want to acknowledge, perhaps. Right. So, I mean, the fact that an outside observer uh, like Thistleton could say that means that there's certain things that we could say maybe your lack of concern about it is colored by your cultural context and you need to. So, I mean, we can we can we can say those things, but I, I do think it is humbling that that it's possible that we don't recognize our cultural influences, you know, coloring the way that we view these theological issues on all sides of this millennial debate and maybe other theological debates. Like I, uh, people don't like to hear it that are Calvinists, but they don't want to hear that later Augustine started to sound like pre-Christian Augustine with the Manichaeanism and that a lot of reform theology sounds like post-medieval philosophical jabber, you know, and categories dumped back onto scripture with, you know, determinism and all that other stuff. Uh, we don't like that, but we do need to be aware of it. And so that's one of the things that I thought was interesting about that little footnote that you put in there about millennial views. Well, it made me think, I wish I told Pritchett this, I wish somebody would make a book and this, I don't even, I can't even imagine the research that would have to go into it where they took all of the same doctrinal topics that would exist in a systematic theology book like yours and then uh, plot out for us when those which versions of those views were the most popular and when and where and what was going on. So you could see like a graph and, and see where it was at. Because I do, I, while we don't want to commit some kind of a genetic fallacy and say, well, just because this was popular at a certain time when X was going on, that means that, um, that it, we shouldn't believe it or it's false or something like that. But it could, I think it could shed some light and some, some evidence, some uh, could, could help us with our seemings of it. Do you know of anything like that ever attempted? No, it sounds like a great project for you, Braxton. <laughs> it's not going to be me. Maybe I'll tell one of our students. Well, yeah, it'd be a good cultural project. I mean, it's a his, in historical theology, you could, I mean, you could rough and ready say early church fathers, Christology was the number one issue. I mean, uh, you could rough and ready say, I think, in the early medieval, um, maybe sanctification 
general revelation in the medieval period seemed to be uh, a topic that Aquinas was, you know, heavily focused on. Um, I, you know, the Reformation, the doctrine of justification, obviously, was a big one, you know. And the uh, post-Great Awakening world, we could say dispensation, you know, eschatology was a big thing. Uh, we could say in the last 25 years, Calvinism was a big thing. I mean, you could you could find little pockets where certain uh, doctrines were emphasized, but I think it would be interesting to take what you're you're talking about and tie it to these cultural things because uh, obviously this rise of and fall of dispensationalism is trying to make that cultural connection with doctrine and what was popular at the time. Um, but why, Doctor Harwood, are you not convinced? of post-millennialism or all-millennialism or pre-millennialism? What keeps you on the fence like I'm on the fence about hell? So the short version is growing up, I would describe my position as functionally all-millennial. And what I mean by that is even though I sat under pastors who I remember hearing them say, well, I'm pre-millennial or I'm historic pre-millennial, uh, and they would actually identify with millennial, uh, the premillennial perspective in their preaching throughout the scriptures. I never heard them refer to the millennium, a thousand year period in which Christ reigned in their preaching, in their teaching, in their their funerals, in their praying, in their pastoral ministry. I never heard. I, I never heard this illustrated or taught from the scripture. And so when when i was pressed by a theological mentor what's your view on eschatology i gave a standard answer about christ's return and that he would reign and when i was pressed for details uh and then asked specifically you know what what's your view of the millennium i explained well i guess you know functionally i'm an amillennial because it's not part i, I don't see a thousand year reign in the scripture apart from Revelation chapter 20, that one particular passage. Um, and I was excoriated. I was, I was, uh, uh, I had a mentor really lay into me um, for that answer. And he told me I was spiritualizing scripture. And he asked me, well, what are you going to do with uh, the end of Isaiah? What are you going to do with Psalm 72? What are you going to do with the judging of angels? And I thought, I'm not sure what he's even talking about. <laughs> and so, so, um, so he pointed me to some resources and I spent four to six months reading uh, Charles Ryrie and some other um, prominent dispensationalists and their interpretations of those passages and their larger hermeneutic. And I realized, oh, my word, I've made it all the way uh, uh, into the, the Ph.D. program in a seminary. I, so I had an MDiv and I, I wasn't aware of the significant, the significance of these issues. Uh, but it wasn't until my doctoral program when, when I was challenged on this and accused of spiritualizing the scripture, which I thought, I don't think I do that. Um, and allegorizing when I shouldn't be uh, doing that. So, so I looked at those passage and I realized, well, this is a really difficult issue. So just a, a, a quick example Psalm 72, verses 8 through 14, I've pulled up. Um, the passage says, May he rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and of distant shores 
bring tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present gifts. May all kings bow down to him and nations serve him, for he will deliver the needy who cry out and the afflicted when there's no one to help. So this, this looks like this could be a statement about the literal earthly reign of Christ. Um, uh, the passage refers to one who will rule from sea to sea and the ends of the earth. And in verse eight, tribes and enemies will bow down to him and kings will bring him gift and nations will serve him. Again, this sounds like, oh, this could refer to, to Christ during his reign. Um, he'll deliver the afflicted, save the needy, rescue However, that description was not fulfilled during the earthly ministry of Christ. And it doesn't seem to refer to the eternal state in the future of, of heaven because it mentions enemies. There aren't going to be enemies um, and the needy and the afflicted, verse 12, and the weak in verse 13, and people who experience violence and oppression. None of, none of those things are going to be experienced in the new heaven and new earth. So if, if those events refer to Christ and they weren't fulfilled during his earthly ministry and they won't be fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth, then the millennium seems like an era when that could be fulfilled. Um, maybe this would occur during his reign. So that's an example of a passage of scripture yeah. that doesn't use the term millennium, but can be interpreted in a way that strongly supports the idea of Christ reigning not during his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago um, and not in the new heaven and new earth in the future, but in the period of time prior to the new heaven and new earth, if there's a, a, a millennial reign. So, so I thought, well, gosh, the amillennial position, I can't hold that because I didn't realize there's more than one biblical passage that supports the millennial reign of Christ and, and this one in the Old Testament. And there are other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament which don't seem to fit his first advent or his second coming. And so the millennium is a possible explanation. And then as I continue to read critiques and multi-views books on the millennial views, I realized, well, there are different interpretations for those passages of Scripture that uh, could situate them in other uh, there, there are other reasonable and faithful explanations. And so, so I moved from one position to the other. And then as I pulled back from it with a lack of clarity, I realized that it, it was possible to simply affirm the things that Scripture and the church have clearly affirmed, which is his future return and his bodily resurrection and bodily return and uh, the future resurrection and judgment of the dead, all of those things are things that can clearly be affirmed. And these issues about sequence and timing of his return and the nature of his reign, uh, where there has not been a consensus, it's permissible to simply suspend judgment to say, hey, look, I, I think I have a pretty strong understanding of each of those views, and I found respectable advocates in each of the positions. And I see what they're doing with Scripture. They're not distorting Scripture. They're not misinterpreting it. I may not agree with their interpretation or be fully persuaded, but I don't think they're being irresponsible. And there's simply not a consensus. And add to that the fact that what we're dealing with is prophetic material, material in Scripture that's prophetic, and it hasn't yet been fulfilled. And, and so one of the things I write about to conclude this section of, of, of the book is uh, imagine being in the shoes of an 8th century individual, 8th century B.C., 
when Isaiah um, prophesied that the Lord would uh, give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call him Emmanuel. How confusing would that be? And in the 8th century BC, you wouldn't know that the virgin's name is Mary. You wouldn't know the fiance's name was Joseph. You wouldn't know the child would be the eternal son of God, that he's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to return to judge humanity. Those are all things you wouldn't know. However, fast forward uh, 800 years and you have Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who explains about the birth of Jesus. This is to fulfill what the prophet said. And then he quotes Isaiah 7. And then we all go, ah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> right? The Isaiah 7 passage was confusing when it was delivered. Mm -hmm. uh, at least there wasn't full clarity mm -hmm. in the matter. And when you took other prophetic passages about, about um, uh, the, the promised Messiah, it, there's just a lack of clarity. It's foggy. It's fuzzy, I think. But then when you when you get to the fulfillment in Christ and then you look back on the prophetic material, you say, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. And, and that's the position we are in salvation history regarding eschatology. There are promises about Christ's future rule and reign, but he hasn't returned yet. And so we have a sense of what we think it's going to look like, but we I'm just not sure any of us know it will become clear one day, but we're not we're not there yet. Well, let me ask you this. When you were, uh, just to hit this real quick, when you were kind of a functional um, amillennialist, did you, uh, do you think now that you were spiritualizing Scripture? Do you think that's a fair criticism? I don't think I was spiritualizing Scripture because in the Revelation 20 passage, when I ran across that, I thought, well, I'm not exactly sure what to make of this rule and reign of Christ, but because it's only mentioned one time explicitly and because it's in a very difficult book to interpret revelation mm -hmm. <laughs> and because in the immediate context, it talks about binding Satan in chains. And I don't think these are literal chains because I don't think you can bind Satan with literal chains. There's obviously some non-literal language, not that it's not true, but it's non-literal. There's non-literal language here. So, I can't quite make sense of it, but that's okay because it's a difficult book and there's only one passage. Yeah. And so that, uh, so I didn't think I was spiritualizing or allegorizing scripture. I think I was using yeah. trusted hermeneutical principles to. I think so. Uh, and like when you look at, when you say, when someone makes a challenge like that, um, the thing that comes to my head is, well, wait a minute. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Does he own the, only the cattle on only a thousand hills or does he own all the cattle on all the hills? Uh, and so, oh, well, you're spiritualizing scripture. I mean, well, hold on. You know, so you have to you have to pay close attention. This is one of the fun things about theology, uh, talking systematic theology with you. And we need to let you go soon because Pritchett would love to sit here with you for five more hours. And so would I. Um, but you don't probably have that. And uh, you're a busy man. But um, uh, this is the fun thing about systematic theology is because. You talk about one thing and it dog legs off into about six other things you want to talk about. And then there's a biblical story that you have to talk about and you find yourself just bouncing around all over the place. And it's why we love doing this. Yeah. Um, before if just uh, clean up for for questions, if people 
put in questions is a good time to re-put in your questions. Our chat's been very busy today. Of course, everyone well, wants to debate. Well, I don't even know if we should do any more questions. We've been taking them as we go. Yeah. You know, and um, we probably need to let bro – uh, yeah, Brother Adam go. <laughs> brother Adam. I was like, that he is my brother. <laughs> yeah, uh, but my, my final question was uh, full preterism. I've been seeing this more. Uh, there was a gentleman named Sam Frost who used to affirm that, that moved out of it, and that caused a big stink. And I think a prominent partial preterist has moved into full preterism, as mm. I understand it. Uh, I don't want to... If I'm wrong, forgive me, Gary DeMar, but I'm seeing a lot of people say he's kind of gone off the deep end, where I remember 25 years ago he was kind of a partial preterist guy and was popularized. But if I'm wrong about that, I, and that's just hyperbole from his opponents, okay, I'm sorry. But I have seen the issue of full preterism. There's a guy that hangs out in the Trinity Radio Forum who affirms full preterism. What? So, yeah. Um, so explain what the difference between, like, the – partial preterist or the preterist view and the full preterist view and why that is absolute heresy and if you believe it you're going to go to whatever version of hell is true <laughs> well <clears throat> i'm sympathetic to someone who takes a partial preterist uh interpretation of some of these passages in the gospels because um it I think a good case can be made that some of the statements that Jesus was making um, could have been, could be interpreted as statements concerning the destruction of the temple. And, um, and if that's the case, uh, you know, no, no problem. Um, in fact, sometimes that may be the best explanation for the passage. The problem is if you take that method and you expand it and say every statement about the coming of the Son of Man or the return of Christ concerns uh, the destruction of the temple, that's a that's deeply problematic. And that runs counter to what all Christians have believed in in all eras. Um, so if the measure of orthodoxy is what all Christians have believed everywhere at all times, uh, you know, the consensus uh, of, of the Christian tradition, the consensus regarding um, Christ includes his future return. And so if you deny that, you put yourself outside of the Christian tradition. And so <clears throat> that, that would be measured by, again, what Christian... Orthodox Christian groups from a, a wide range, Roman Catholic to Eastern Orthodox to various um, Protestant and, and mainstream um, uh, tr mainline traditions have believed. Um, <clears throat> uh, Christian histories, confessions from some of the very earliest confessions that we have on record all affirm the future return of Christ. And, and, this is clear in the scripture um genesis excuse me matthew to revelation uh <clears throat> i meant to say all of the new testament um it's crystal clear that the the hope is christ's return christ's future return and this is an expectation yeah. this is something we're to pray for this is something we're we're to uh look for and 
and uh, be faithful witnesses of Jesus until he returns. And so uh, I suspect it's a small number. I, I can't imagine that many, many um, people would take the position, would take preterism so far as to deny the future return of Christ. But yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind going on record to say if you deny the future return of Christ, you've put yourself outside of Christian orthodoxy. I and mean, that, that's easy. Amen. Let's yeah, that is I 100 percent agree. So before we let you go, uh, there was one question that somebody had. And I think I want uh, I'm interested in the answer to this, too, because something Braxton and I talk a lot about uh, from Aaron S. asks about uh, double fulfillment, um, like a dual fulfillment, dual, dual, yeah, dual fulfillment. Um, can it says question. Can you ask him about dual fulfillment? So or a prophecy of double reference, I've heard it called. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that as it relates to like some of these end times discussions? I absolutely believe that. So, for example, I mentioned Isaiah chapter seven earlier, that there would be a child that would be born and this would be a sign. The, the concept of dual fulfillment means that in the eighth century, there was a particular understanding and fulfillment of that promise or that statement that doesn't preclude a later fulfillment or a later significance to that particular statement. So in that sense, there's either dual fulfillment in the eighth century uh, and then also um, at the revelation of Christ. Um, that there gets may into be... some sticky issues, though, if you take the the baby in chapter, what is it, chapter nine of Isaiah as like the... And then you get into the Septuagint using... That's uh, another show. That's time yeah, for another show. A clear word, <laughs> reference to the word virgin in the Septuagint instead of just young maiden. Yeah. And then it gets you into census plenier. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's a, we could do a whole other show on that. So, but yeah, but in theory, you think that that's valid because I, I could say there does seem to be a lot... It has like, to be valid because that's what happened there. If we're Christians. Depends on if you, not if you ask Walter Kaiser, he says that's not what happened there. So, I mean, it depends on who you ask. If that's what, so, um, yeah, I, I, at least in principle, this idea of double fulfillment is there because as it relates to what you're saying about the Gospels, how a lot of that seems to make sense in, in, in uh, a 70 AD in view, but it could also be a, a, a double reference there or uh, something like that. And then you could have that with Revelation too, where, why not kind of glimmers of preterism, but also a futurist kind of sense to, to that apocalypse. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of also kind of like the eclectic view of revelation. Is there not a possible eclectic view of eschatology in general um, that you could marry those things? Because I know for some classical dispensationalists that, they're like, no, what it meant in the Old Testament is what it means in the New Testament. Because Matthew gave the final word on Isaiah 7, 14, that's what Isaiah meant. There are people like that. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess we'd have to explore. That's a more hermeneutics question, but but I did want to get your thoughts. So you're open to that idea of the double referent or, or dual fulfillment, just broadly speaking. Yes, and another example that comes to mind is Isaiah and Ezekiel both talk about the kings of Tyre and Sidon, and they could also be understood as references to the fall of Satan. I know there's not a consensus. That came up last week, Adam, on this show, I think. <laughs> oh, did it really? Yeah, well, two weeks ago. Yeah. Well, you said the word possible, so let's... <laughs> yeah. 
is that do you just leave it at it's possible or or is that your view i say possible because not all christian interpreters affirm that and so it's a possible interpretation it's not the only faithful interpretation fair enough jonathan i have here in my hand um some ducks tape and i plan to come and put it across your mouth in a moment because we have kept dr harwood here for like almost two hours and we gotta let him go. He's got young Southern Baptists to teach, and old Southern Baptists to teach. He's probably. got Southern Baptists in our audience to teach as well. But oh, I Adam. hear you. I'm sorry. We just don't ever talk about eschatology much because if we didn't have you here, it would just be incoherent nonsense. So, uh, I thank you so much for coming. And uh, really, we love you. And I meant to tell you before we started of all the things to forget to tell you is Adam. Uh, I, you have meant so much to me um, and helped me so much in ways that you don't even know about. And I really do. It's an honor every time you agree to come on the show. Thank you. Plus so it much. helps our views go. Up. It does help our views. <laughs> yes. But yes. Well, uh, anything I, you want to shout out? What do you, what do you got coming up? Where can people find and follow you at? I, I just want to say um, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, Braxton and Jonathan, your friends, I'm grateful for your, for your ministry and for your friendship. And, um, I, I'm not anywhere to follow. I, I live in New Orleans on the seminary campus, and, and so <laughs> they can follow you down the sidewalk. Yeah, I, yeah, but I don't have much of a virtual presence. I mean, I've, I'm an old guy. I, I still I still check Facebook, and and uh, occasionally I'll look at Twitter. And but I, I yet have a, somehow, a, folks, in case you didn't hear this the last time he's on the show, though he says he doesn't have a presence in media. He actually was a scientist in the background in Jurassic World, the first of the renewed Jurassic Park films. There's a scientist walking around in a lab coat. There's a bunch of them. He's one of them. And looking at him right now, doesn't he just scream scientist? He does of to course. me. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, My kids uh, want to be extras in a movie, and so we all signed up, and I was the only one called back, and uh, that was my only time in a movie, and so I retired on top. It was a multi-billion dollar <laughs> movie. I was a little offended when Chris Pratt didn't call me back for the uh, sequel, but oh wow, his loss! I didn't even see that sequel because you weren't in it. I haven't seen the last two. I haven't. I haven't seen the 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 two. I just saw the one that you were in. Yeah, I hear then, Malcolm Yarnell's in the second one. Oh, is he now? <laughs> I seriously doubt it. Anyway, famous uh, extra actor and systematic theologian <laughs> Adam Harwood. Appreciate right. you coming on, and to everyone else. We'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.